It was a very, very frustrating process, but I think all things happen for a reason. And in this case, me getting hurt allowed for a lot of things. It allowed for the growth and development of our younger players, gave me a greater appreciation of the game. I always loved the game and cherished it, but just having it taken away at that moment in time, you know, it kind of gives you perspective on not only sports in general, but life and how important life can be. This week, we celebrate the nine-year anniversary of Lehigh beat Duke, one of the most memorable NCAA tournament moments in history. Also, one of the most memorable moments of my life. I'm forever grateful for Duke as much as I hate them because they put me in a position to play the game I love at the highest level. I would say that I'm pulling up on LaMelo, but only to dish to Edwards as well because I think that it's time they start discussing co-rookie of the year. Pull Up is officially back. Welcome back to episode 108. On this date, March 18th, the actual date we'll be releasing this podcast, in 1988, Michael Jordan drops 50 in a win over the Celtics. On this date in 2017, the late Kobe Bean Bryant drops 50 in a win over the Timberwolves. And two days ago, March 16th, Damian Lillard drops 50 points in arguably one of the most efficient 50-point games in NBA history, 18 for 18 from the line to go along with 10 assists, capping off one of the most remarkable comebacks in NBA history with the team being down 17 or more points with six minutes to go, 230-plus times that has happened, and 230-plus times the team has won, and now the Blazers becoming the first team in 230-something games to come back from being down 17-plus points with six minutes left. And that's how we start pull-up. A wild, wild game last night. Crazy, crazy game. Also, my first game back. Thankful to be back in the lineup. Thankful to be back out there competing with my team and looking forward to fans being able to join. But I briefly just want to talk about how great um, Dame has been this season, how great the Portland Trailblazers have played um, despite us uh, missing Yusuf Nurkic, myself, and some other players being in and out of the lineup. I think we've done a tremendous job of staying afloat uh, con- considering the circumstances to be a top four, top five, top six seed without two starters is a testament to the guys stepping up, younger players evolving, um, taking advantage of their roles, taking advantage of their extended minutes. Terry doing a great job of like, continuing to get the best out of players. And Dame, obviously playing at an MVP level, um, was was instrumental um, in, in this process throughout the season. Looking at the breakdown of the game last night, playing against a young New Orleans team with arguably the best big man the game has seen since Shaquille O'Neal. And, and no, I'm not saying Zion is better. I'm just simply saying from a standpoint of how dominant he's been shooting over 60% from the field, uh, consistently getting 25 points a night, uh, breaking record after record after record, being named an all-star starter replacement in the all-star game is is unheard of uh, for a guy that young. Uh, Looking at him being under 25 years old, under 23 years old, essentially barely old enough to serve in this, <laughs> to serve for this country, with him only doing one year at Duke, I think it's a it's a testament to how the game has evolved, how he's been able to evolve his game, having battle injuries to show how consistent he can be when he plays 30, 30 plus minutes. And then you look at the rest of their roster. Lonzo Ball has seventeen assists, a career high. 
Uh, Brandon Ingram, another guy who's playing at an all-star caliber level. This team is is very, very good. I'm actually surprised uh, they've struggled so much this season. But before I talk about my Portland Trailblazers, I just briefly want to talk about Zion averaging 25.6 points per game, seven rebounds, um, a little under four assists. And being able to do that at just 20 years old, he's listed as 6'7", 284 pounds, which is crazy because the way he gets off the ground is unlike anything we've seen before for any player, specifically a guy who's basically 300 pounds. He's shooting 62% from the field, 69 from the line, and a worldly, worldly rim percentage where the guy basically is an automatic bucket once he gets inside the paint. It's either a layup or a foul. And he showed the ability to handle the basketball, which is a key ingredient to success uh, when you're a post player is being able to score in a multitude of ways, especially if you're more so paint dominant and him being able to initiate offense, showing versatility and ability as a passer has been huge for them. And he's been a great asset, but looking at our team dynamic, what we've been able to accomplish um, the, the the past 25 games, looking at Gary Trent Jr. First and foremost, a guy who stepped up in my role as a starter and has performed admirably. I used to always jokingly tell him that he's made himself a lot of money and he's done what he's supposed to do. And I'm very, very happy for him. But just last night, comes off the bench, plays 31 minutes, 22 points, 6 of 10 from the field, 3 of 7 from 3, 7 of 7 from the line, plus 8. Great game all around. Melo played some small ball, 5 down the stretch, and I think that was the difference in the game. Defensively, giving us another guy out there who can not only be a threat on offense, but has some great pick and roll plays to where he was able to get stops on Eric Bledsoe. He gets a block and a, and a save. He hits a, a huge 3 at the top of the key over Steven Adams that was later ruled a two and just kind of showed, you know, that he still got it. And then you look at Ennis, who's just Mr. Consistent, always consistently performing. D. Jones, 4-4 from the field, 10 points. Cove does a little bit of everything, including getting a key, key stop um, on Zion after a great full court pass from Lonzo. And then looking at our bench, Rodney Hood plays well. Guards, Brandon Ingram down the stretch, holds him to zero points the last seven minutes. We end up holding New Orleans to six points uh, the last seven minutes of that game, which ultimately was the difference. Nazir Little had um, 17, 18, 18 minutes and has showed his athleticism and versatility. But obviously, the guy I haven't spoken about is Dame, who has had the world on his shoulders uh, this season with with so much of our offense being missing and has had to play a lot of minutes, do a lot of different things, has showed leadership by taking charges down the stretch of games, has made the extra pass when it was needed and, and essentially wills us to victory, scoring 50 points in, in in 40 minutes on 20 shots is just absurd. Six threes, hits 18 free throws. A guy's shooting like 93% from the free throw line on just under eight attempts per game, which is by far, you know, an NBA record for highest percentage based on uh, free throws attempted. Normally, guys shoot 90, 90, 92%. They only shoot in two or three free throws a game. He's shooting almost 10 and has just been the epitome of consistency, has, has seemed to figure out a way to get better each year. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to, to play alongside him. And I'm looking forward to continuing to see how we build um, together uh, once we continue to get more healthy. Looking at Nurk's timeline on where he's at, with his uh, broken hand, he's 
continued to figure out ways to recover while staying mobile, um, was banged up a little bit with a calf injury um, during his, his rehab process. But he has since said he should be back in the next couple of weeks. So we're looking forward to him joining us. And obviously, Zach Collins is still out along with Harry. So we're, we're rounding out and, and getting closer and closer to 100%. And, and obviously, I'll speak about you know my recovery process, where I'm currently at, and what it was like uh, since I went down January 16th later on in the pod. But just wanted to kind of address first and foremost, where we're at now, where we're looking to go, and how we can kind of continue to build from there by talking about how well the Portland Trailblazers have been doing as of late. But obviously, we'll continue to touch on so many so many other things, um, including my road to recovery, NBA scheduling, and a new segment that we're adding called Pull Up or Dish. So please, please, please stay tuned. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Hit us with a five-star review, share the show with a friend, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pull Up for fresh content all season long. As you all know, I suffered an injury back on January 16th against the Atlanta Hawks. I was playing some of the best basketball of my career, career highs in points per game, assists per game, three-point percentage, uh, assist-to-turnover ratio, plus-minus, uh, defensive rating, offensive rating, and, and probably a lot of other categories. And it was very unfortunate because obviously timing, the, the quick turnaround and the fact that I had been through um, two previous foot fractures with this becoming my third was my new reality. So it was, a, it was a really tough time. And ironically, originally we thought it was just a uh, foot sprain. So I ended up getting an x-ray at halftime of that game and decided not to go back into the game, obviously, because I could barely walk. And I was told that it was a foot sprain. Um, they took the pictures. I think we ended up doing an x-ray as well as an MRI and a CT scan. So I missed the entire second half. And for those of you that aren't aware of what an MRI is like, you basically lay down in a machine and they isolate whatever area that is and you can't move for about 45 minutes and they and they continue to scan whatever part of that body it is for you. And for me, it was my foot. So it makes these really loud noises. So you come out of it with a headache and it's it's just a, a crazy process because in the back of your mind, you're just kind of thinking the worst. Like, I wonder what happened. Like, is it broke? How bad is the break? How severe is this? Is this a Liz Frank injury? Is it a foot? Is it an actual like bone injury? I knew it wasn't my fifth metatarsal because I had actually fractured that twice and the and that that appeared to be stable. So I was just more so worried about um, the extent of the injury. And when I actually came out and they told me that it wasn't broken, I was like, are you sure? <laughs> because I can barely walk and I was in a lot of pain. But I actually went home that night thinking that I was going to be out 10 days or two weeks and that I would be back in time and be able to continue to help the team. And, and maybe I make my first all-star game and all these things that I was thinking about trying to accomplish from a team and individual standpoint were still in play. And then the next day, I show up in a in a walking boot um, and they pull me into the office and say, hey, we need to talk. And it's like that that type of situation or conversation like where your significant other tells you you need to talk. You know it's bad. Uh, you know something is, is wrong. And in most cases, if from a relationship standpoint, you're figuring out what you did wrong. And in this situation, like I knew it was my foot, but I just didn't know how bad it was. And I knew if I had a Liz Frank injury, I'm looking at like four to six months. I'm looking at surgery, very invasive process. And in my uh, eighth season, 
would uh, would be over. Uh, my season would be all but done, and I would be rehabbing throughout the summer again, which is what I had to do last summer for my back. So I immediately thought the worst. Uh, they they made me do another X-ray, another MRI, another CT scan, and weight bearing just to kind of clarify what they what they found. And the doctor eventually pointed out. He said you have a midfoot fracture. Um, you also strained some ligaments. And the funny part is that he said that the ligaments would actually take longer than the foot fracture to heal. And he was right. Um, going throughout that process, now I had to kind of reshift, reshape, understanding that I was going to be out um, at least to all-star break. They gave me a, a six to eight week window at the bare minimum, basically saying that you know, you're going to be out these six weeks. Uh, the doctor basically told me, take the full eight weeks because this is your third foot fracture. And they booted me for five weeks, which was devastating um, because you basically can't do any workouts. You can't run. You, c- you couldn't, you can't ride the bike the first week. And I wasn't able to walk my dog for four weeks. And anybody that knows me knows I love my little Fiona. And um, that was tough. That was, a, that was a tough, tough pill to swallow. Um, but being in this position now, I haven't fractured my foot so many times. I kind of knew how to approach the rehab. I was basically asking them, like, when when can I get my boot off and start moving my foot around? When can I start strengthening the toes and the ligaments? And the hardest part about a foot injury is that you don't realize how important it is until you try to go to the bathroom. You try to stand up in the shower. Um, you have to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. and You got to get up and walk in the dark and you try to find your boot. And I basically slept with my leg elevated for 10 days and I wasn't able to do any real activities um, in terms of biking or or getting into water uh, for two and a half weeks. And I was non-weight bearing for four weeks. And then the, the week of transitioning from week four to five, I was able to, you know, kind of start introducing some some activities where I would stand up and lift. But it was a very, very frustrating process. But I think all good things, uh, all things happen for a reason. And in this case, uh, me getting hurt allowed for a lot of things. It allowed for for growth and development of our younger players. It gave me a greater appreciation of the game. I always loved the game and cherished it. But just having it taken away at that moment in time, you know, it kind of gives you perspective on not only sports in general, but life and how important life can be especially life outside of basketball, uh, being able to be home more, being able to be more present around my wife, being able to, to be able to, to focus on some other business ventures was, was important. But I think that the best part about the injury was that I was able to, to go to uh, some of the things that involved uh, my wife's uh, grandmother passing away, being able to, to, to go to the private viewing, being able to support her during a time where I normally wouldn't be able to um, because of the sport I play for a living. We don't always have those luxuries and, and are always able to, to really mourn properly or, or be a part of that process when a family member is struggling. So I'm thankful for the, for the injury in, in, in that respect. But looking at the whole process, um, we had targeted um, pre, pre-All-Star break a little bit. We looked at the, a, a couple games before the All-Star break ended at the, the, the six and a half, seven week mark. And then we looked at post-All-Star break. We eyed the Phoenix game originally, but with me and me ending up leaving um, to attend the viewing in Florida, the private viewing, we kind of pushed it back a little bit. And then we also looked at that Sunday game against Minnesota, but I, I was still sore from the previous day of workouts. And just want to remind everybody out there that during the, the current COVID protocols, we weren't practicing. Uh, there's all these, these rules and regulations around testing. 
And I wasn't able to play five on five at all um, during my process. I, I wasn't able to practice. I basically didn't, I didn't run on the basketball court for seven full weeks and I returned eight weeks in a day or eight weeks in three days um, in, our, in our most recent game on Tuesday. So that was kind of like my process. And obviously it started off with a lot of lifting weights. It started off with teetering and changing my diet. Uh, to make sure that I didn't gain weight because I wouldn't be active. And then, you know, I'll post some pictures uh, so that you guys get an idea of some of the workouts I was doing. But, you know, just having a boot on, shooting in a chair, shooting on a on an exercise ball, lifting, doing core, watching a lot of film, tightening up my ball handling and and just trying to stay mentally sharp and mentally engaged, knowing that I wouldn't be able to run or jump while shooting for seven weeks. And uh, for me, it was it was important that I came back uh, once I felt like my foot was fully healed, but also once I felt like I was mentally and physically ready to dive back into the rigors of of an NBA game. And um, we decided on on Sunday that I would probably play Tuesday as long as I felt good uh, after the travel. I got in one on one with Kelgen and uh, rookie CJ. And I'm thankful for them because you know, without them, I wouldn't have been able to get much contact in. So I got some one-on-one with those guys um, at home, as well as in Minnesota on the road. We played some one-on-one full court, and then we played two-on-two with Pargo and Jamal, uh, Jamal being our uh, assistant video coordinator and Pargo being our assistant coach. Uh, I was able to kind of test it out, and then I wasn't sore the next day, and we decided that I would play on a, on a minute restriction basically in six- to seven-minute intervals. And that's what I ended up doing last night. But man, I was just excited to honestly be able to take the court again. After two months, I was a little rusty. Uh, the game um, is still the same, but for me, having not played for a while, I was just trying to find my rhythm. And I actually started off the game very well, <laughs> hitting two of my first three shots. I got two free throws to start and I was feeling good. And then just just was a little flat, turned the ball over a few more times than I would have liked. But all in all, I felt great from a movement-based standpoint. And I'm really just looking forward to getting back out there and getting as much five on five in as I can, because uh, as of late, I haven't been able to to do that due to the current circumstances. But for anybody out there that's battling injuries and and, and battling adversity in their life, I, I completely understand you know what you're going through and what you've gone through having been hurt so many times. It's important that you continue to find joy in the small things. I think you really gain a perspective through injury. And I think it's also important that you find me time to meditate, find me time to go on walks. If you're allowed to go on walks, depending on the severity of your injury and find healthy hobbies outside of whatever is, is taken away from you from an injury standpoint, because otherwise you can't go insane. And I think at times uh, I was, I was sad or I felt sorry for myself, but then I would just shift the perspective of things could definitely be a lot worse. And I'm in a position where I can rehab and come back from this and I will come back stronger and I'm looking forward to the challenge of, of playing. When this podcast is released, we'll be getting ready to play against New Orleans again, which will be my second game since returning and I'll be on a mini minute restriction again as I look to try to play in a, my first back-to-back. But I'm looking forward to that challenge and I'll go into a little bit more detail on some of the COVID restrictions, uh, what we're going through right now from a NBA standpoint, from a societal standpoint, and how COVID has really affected our schedule, kind of making things smaller uh, in terms of timetables for turnaround on injuries and then timetables for turnaround on games. But once again, I'm, I'm really looking forward to returning. I'm very thankful and fortunate to be back to playing the game that I love with some of my teammates, but it's also probably the worst time 
I could possibly return to the NBA season due to the fact that we have 10 back-to-backs. COVID has pushed timelines for the NBA season up to where we have to play 37 games in 67 days. This week alone, we're playing five games in eight days with minimum practice time to no practice time, only watching film to where I'm not able to necessarily get contact unless it's in the game. The condensed schedule on the back of a very, very short offseason for most teams, um, including obviously the Los Angeles Lakers and the Miami Heat, who ended up going to the finals. For me, it was a a super short season because I ended up fracturing my back. So I was forced to kind of rehab during the offseason and not work out uh, while also trying to handle some personal matters like scheduling a wedding and things of that nature. But um, COVID in general has affected this world in, in ways we could we could only imagine. Uh, but seeing how it's affected the NBA season from a scheduling standpoint to the protocols that are implemented have definitely impacted players, not only physically, but also mentally. Looking at the testing protocols that are currently in place, uh, on most days we test up to four times a day. For instance, today... Uh, We did a rapid test in the morning and you basically sit in your car and you can't return to the building until you've returned the negative. So you sit in your car for 30 minutes and you get a text message saying that you can enter the building if you're good to go. And I imagine that if you don't get the text message that you're positive or maybe they just tell you that you're not good to go. But I haven't been in that position um, just yet. But that's the type of stress that you're under in the mornings. It's kind of like waiting your fate to kind of figure out know what's going to happen. And then after the rapid test, we generally do like a PCR test, I believe is what it's called. And that's a test that gets sent to the lab and those results come back later in the day, generally uh, early to late afternoon before the game. So if you test at nine, those results will probably come back around three. And I think that's why some teams have ran into problems before games, because depending on where your lab is at, um, depends on how fast you get your results and Some teams in the South have to send their labs up North or to the Midwest or in some cases to the West Coast. Um, For instance, while I was in Florida, I tested with the Mets and they said their test was getting shipped to Utah or plane to Utah, which is really weird. I didn't understand that, but that's just the way their their organization and and things were set up in, in Florida where I was at. But we test in the morning and then we also have to test post game. And if there's not a game, for instance, like, On Wednesday, uh, we test in the morning, and then we have to test in the window between five and six. So that's the the schedule from a testing standpoint. In terms of practicing, for the first week, we weren't weren't able to work out in the morning. We were only subject to one non-masked activity a day, and generally that that was reserved for practice or that was reserved for the game. So depending on what type of situation you're in from a return to play standpoint, you you only get approved for extra workouts or or time with staff or treatment if you're in the the process of recovering from an injury and coming back. So that's one of the ways in which you can get extra work in. But otherwise, you're restricted to only activities with the team during the allotted windows and times. We actually had a long memo that I'm just going to share with you guys um, because I think it's it's interesting as to kind of where we're at, but they started off with like a 110 page memo and then continue to expand it. But we get bullet points on updates and things we're allowed to do and not allowed to do on the road. So for instance, this one says activities on the road, players will be permitted to participate in physical activity outdoors once per day for one hour between 6am and 6pm players remain prohibited from entering crowded settings 
or any establishment such as, but not limited to restaurants, retail shops, etc. Guests on the road, up to four family members or longtime close personal friends, whatever that means, will be permitted to visit a player while he is on the road. In order to qualify, the visitor must A, reside in the area, B, return two negative PCR testings taken the two days prior to the visit, test to be facilitated by the team, and then you have to take additional PCR tests on the day of the visit and the following day. Also, players must register the visitors with his team at least two days prior to the visit. And now they're subjecting people that you are in close contact with at home to daily testing. So, for instance, a significant other, a PT, a chef, a massage therapist, or even cleaning service people, depending on how how much contact you're you're coming into play with them. But that's kind of where we're at. And I think from a mental standpoint, it can be exhausting sometimes because you may forget the test or you have to set an alarm and I'm literally planning each day around like testing times, uh, what times practice are going to be, what time I need to schedule rehab, and then when can I get back on the court to try to get extra work in so that I feel sharp and and ready to play. But I think this is the the risk you have to take. And uh, I said it earlier today on an interview I was in that we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to play a game we love and, and make so much money. And we also understand what's at stake here from a standpoint of a job that we have that also empowers so many other people and also employs so many other people. So I don't want to seem like I'm complaining about the protocols because they are necessary and they have been pretty successful for the most part. And this is a game we've all signed up to play, agreed to play and are happy to be playing. Uh, but it just can take a lot on you and it can take a, a mental toll on you. Um, the last thing I'll talk about from a testing standpoint is our trip to Minnesota so we flew to Minnesota, we landed, we practiced, we had testing after practice, and we actually lost two hours. And our testing schedule was 8, 8.15 to 8.45 a.m., which is 6.15 to 6.45 a.m. Pacific time. So we tested in that schedule because they had to ship our test uh, to another place or plane them to another place. And then the next day, I think Draymond talked about this on Twitter, how they had a noon game uh, the same day as day, daylight savings time, and they had adjusted their practice schedules. We had a back-to-back, one I didn't, I didn't end up playing in, but we had a back-to-back where the game finishes at, you know, 10 or 11. You lose an hour, so now we're three hours uh, behind on Pacific time, and we had another 8 a.m. testing slot uh, with a back-to-back. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how some of this testing is not only ruining some of the, the players' sleeping schedules, but also affecting them mentally and physically because of the recovery standpoint of everything. But just wanted to paint that picture to what COVID has done from a scheduling standpoint and what it's also done from a mental standpoint of just staying in your room, watching Netflix and kind of chilling out. But really looking forward to talking about this new episode we have called Pull Up or Dish, where I'll discuss LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Wiseman, Quickly, Halliburton, and, and so much more. So stay locked in. Now I want to introduce you guys to a new segment called Pull Up or Dish, where I basically discuss on whether or not I agree with it. And if I agree, I'm pulling up. And if I don't agree, I'm dishing it. Right now, we're going to talk about whether or not LaMelo Ball is the rookie of the year so far. And I am pulling up on this. However, based on recent circumstances and how well Anthony Edwards has been playing since the All-Star break, I think he should, should share it. 
I think they should share uh, rookie of the year as it stands. If they both continue to play this well, um, which would put them in the in the ranks along alongside some of the other greats like Jason Kidd and Grant Hill, who shared the award in 1995. As it currently stands, LaMelo Ball is averaging just under 16 points per game, six rebounds, six assists, and a little less than two steals. As a starter, he's averaging over 20 points per game, five, there's six rebounds and six assists. So he's kind of showing how well he is uh, from a consistency standpoint as a starter and also showing his value as a playmaker and a lead guard. And I think it goes without saying, you know you're playing well when Michael Jordan goes on the record saying that you're doing better than they expected and better than they thought. And Mike is a guy who never mints his words and never pumps people up unless they are worthy. I also want to mention that LaMelo Ball entered All-Star break as the only rookie in the last 60 seasons, that's right, 60 years, to lead all rookies in total points, rebounds, assists, and steals, while having the Hornets currently sit at number five in the East, which is in firm position of a playoff spot, around 500. Turning the page, looking at Anthony Edwards, since All-Star break, he's averaging 27.8 points, two and a half assists, five rebounds, and shooting 47% from three. He had a career high recently against us last week where he showed an arsenal of moves, including a sidestep tray ball and a sidestep to the left between the legs, hanging crossover three-point shot, which kind of shows you his ceiling is whatever he wants it to be in terms of scoring because of his ability to finish around the basket. Explosive first step, strong, and loves to get to that left hand. So th- there's two rookies right there who have who have shown they have star-like qualities and will be in this league for a long time. I am a big, big, big quickly fan from New York Knicks. I think he has one of the best floaters I've ever seen. He gets into the lane, plays with a great pace, and uh, from, from what I've heard on all accounts, he's a very, very hard worker. Wiseman, shout out to my fellow Excel athlete. Has a bright, bright future in and out of the rotation right now in terms of minutes because he's playing with the Warriors. Kevin Looney, who's a guy who's been there for a long time, has taken away some of his minutes. But I think Wiseman has showed that he's the big man of the future. He's versatile. He's effective. He can block shots. He runs like a deer. And he has touch out to the, the three-point line, which is very, very important in today's day and age of basketball. Halliburton may be the most surprising out of all of the rookies because of how consistent he's been, how efficient he's been, and how effective he's been able to play alongside a dominant garden deer and Fox, as well as by himself. He's been able to kind of carry the water on his own and also dish it out with, a, with an assisted turnover ratio uh, that's one of the highest in the NBA at 3.4 to 1. And I think that his, his set shot jumper, although it's not always pretty, the result is definitely where it needs to be. So I'm a big Halliburton fan. I think he's got good size. I think they're going to eventually start both of those guys alongside each other and, and kind of see where it goes from there. But I would say that I'm pulling up on LaMelo, but only to dish to Edwards as well, because I think that it's time they start discussing co-rookie of the year. Looking at some of the hottest teams in the NBA right now, the question is whether or not the Jazz are the hottest team in the NBA, and I'm going to dish on that uh, with all due respect. Big Donovan Mitchell fan. I like their team in general. Jordan Clarkson should be sixth man of the year. Rudy, arguably defensive player of the year, but Doc Rivers would argue otherwise. I think that Utah is a very good team, well-coached, well-rounded. They execute well. 29-10 and 10 record, but they're just 5-5 five and five in their last 10, so that I have to say the Nets are the hottest team in the league. They've been playing extremely well without Kevin Durant, who's a top three player in this league. It could be top two some nights, depends on uh, who's out there playing with them. And I think that 
them being able to play so well with KD not playing, Blake Griffin not playing, um, Kyrie playing the best basketball of his career, James having an MVP caliber season that no one talks about. The Nets winning nine of their last 10 games kind of shows you how locked in they are and also how incomplete they are with the pieces that they're missing. The Bucs are starting to figure things out and the Heat are also playing extremely well. Um, Jimmy Butler's made a huge, huge difference. Fellow leaning shoe guy made a huge, huge difference on that team with him being healthy, him being out there. And they also just got an underrated trade done uh, with the trade for Trevor Ariza, who's a 3 and D guy and also a friend of the family. Looking at the Phoenix Suns, I was able to watch them very closely the last couple weeks with us playing against them. They're 26 and 12. Eight and two in their last 10. They're looking strong. Devin Booker and CPF kind of figured out how to mesh together. And I love Mikael Bridges. He's going to get paid a lot of money um, this, this upcoming summer or the next year. And is a key, key piece for them. And I think that Jay Crowder signing was, was bigger than people thought. A guy who does all the little things, doesn't complain, uh, plays defense, makes threes, and has, has helped them. And I just want to give a shout out to Cam as well. Cam was out the league last year. He came back. He was in the G League a little bit. Played well for the uh, Suns in the bubble. And has turned it up and, and, and showed that he can be a quality uh, backup point guard. Another mid-major guy who's you know, kind of proven his worth. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how these teams can t- continue to develop. I'm a huge, huge league pass fan of the Nets. A huge league pass fan of the Bucks. Um, Drew Holiday back in the lineup. And the Sixers, I didn't even talk about them. Um, Embiid got injured. They're still number one in the Eastern Conference. Tobias is playing 50, 40, 90 basketball while averaging over 20. So I, I think he's in a great spot to really show you know, why his dad negotiated a pretty good deal uh, in his last contract. Another segment we're going to introduce on the Pull Up Pod is called Get the Dub, Took the L. The first discussion is centered around Karis LeVert, who's back on the court after getting cancerous mass removed from kidney. I'm a big, big Karis LeVert fan in general. He's definitely getting the dub. Um, Thankful to see him back out there. And I know um, the game is in a better place with him performing. Uh, this is a, a super scary situation in general. And it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, he said it um, once he was traded that the trade actually saved his life because because of the trade, he was able to kind of get his body checked out and have to go through the, the process of extra screenings and, and another physical midseason that we wouldn't normally have until the season ends. So that just kind of shows you you know, how valuable and scary life can be in this process in general of, of health is extremely serious. And even the most healthy people in the world you know, have certain issues that you may not ever know about. So it's, it's important to get your physical, check in with your doctor and do those things. I want to discuss who took the L of the week and it starts in New York, specifically at Madison Square Garden, where security accosted the legendary Patrick Ewing, stopped him, questioned him, asked him if he should even be there. And this is a guy who is arguably one of the greatest Knicks of all time, if not the greatest Nick of all time. Name is in the rafters and is currently the head coach of Georgetown, who's having a historic run this season with a Cinderella run through the Big East tournament, playing extremely well. Um, I think this just kind of shows you where we're at right now. Patrick Ewing being stopped in what he considers to be the house he built. Security, you're taking an L in this situation. This week, we celebrate the nine-year anniversary of Lehigh beat Duke, one of the most memorable NCAA tournament moments in history. Also, one of the most memorable moments of my life because that kind of solidified my name in certain conversations involving the NBA. There is Fiona. 
she's extremely happy and excited about that that Duke <laughs> that Duke reunion uh, that we're going to be having. And I think I went on record saying that I was never a big Duke fan, which is true. I've always been a Tar Heel fan, a fan of Jordan in general. And um, my approach to that game was simple. Uh, I was I was looking forward to to playing at a high level. I was looking forward to kind of solidifying who I thought I was as a player. And I think a lot of times a name is made off of the NCAA tournament. You kind of figure out what a player is made of based on how he rises to certain occasions. And I wanted to make sure that I rose to that occasion and, and helped uplift my team. And I think my confidence, my preparation, my work ethic, and my execution that night uh, kind of aligned perfectly and helped solidify what I thought I was uh, a first-round pick. And that's what I ended up being. So... I'm forever grateful for Duke as much as I hate them because they put me in a position uh, to play the game I love at the highest level. Cue the wine music, please. This is one of my favorite segments that we will keep forever on the pull-up pod where I discuss different wines I've enjoyed as of late from different regions in the world at different price points. Some which could be considered affordable, others which can seem unreasonable. Just kind of depends on your taste buds, where you're at, and what you like. But as the saying always goes, after two, they always taste the same, so drink the good stuff first. The first one I want to discuss is Celaya, a favorite of mine. Um, A red wine from Tuscany. It's actually super Tuscany now, uh, depending on uh, how you view the wine world in general. But it's a very, very good wine among the top 1% in the world. It's more bold than light, more tannic than smooth, more dry than sweet, and has a higher level of acidity, which means your mouth is going to water. It definitely has hints of oak, tobacco, and chocolate. I'm a huge, huge fan of the chocolate hints, blackberry, little earthy, leathery, smoky, but overall, a huge, huge fan of this in general. Uh, Super Tuscany, red wine, great with everything, but pairs best with cured meat, beef, poultry, lamb, and veal. Can also pair it with pizza. I would definitely highly recommend this, and I will be recommending more reasonable wines as well throughout, so stay tuned and stay locked in. Once again, I appreciate all my listeners tuning in to the Pull Up Pod. We'll be sharing content weekly on social, but we'll be releasing episodes every other week. Long, busy season full of games. So we're trying to pack in as much content as we can per episode. So feel free to leave comments, feel free to make suggestions, and feel free to hit up our mailbag because we will be taking questions on there as well. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Hit us with five-star reviews and share the show with a friend. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pull Up Pod for fresh content all season long. And don't forget to pull up. <laughs>